Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Staff Sergeant Michael Aulis. Aulis was in the United States Army and would serve multiple deployments. The one we're going to talk about is in 2013 when he is working out of Fob Ghazni in Afghanistan. A lot of these stories we go over here don't end on a high note, but today's different. Today we get to end with a really cool way of wrapping up the story of Staff Sergeant Michael Aulis. So stick with me. There's still tragedy. There's still some incredible events going on here, but we're going to bring it full circle to one of the better endings, I think, in a lot of the stories we've talked about. To look at the war in Afghanistan at a little higher level, we're talking about 2013 in Ghazni province. Ghazni is in the eastern portion of the country. It's going to sit between Kabul and Kandahar. So Kandahar is south, southeast part of the country, a major population center. And then, of course, Kabul, the capital, sits east, north of east a little bit, um, but but eastern part of the country. And then there's a road called the Ring Road that kind of moves. If you look at a map of Afghanistan, it's a circular. I mean, it's a, it's a ring. It goes through Kandahar and Kabul and Mazar Sharif and Herat. And Ghazni sits along that road. Most major cities in Afghanistan sit along that road. Ghazni sits a little closer to Kabul than Kandahar, but one of the interesting pieces of Ghazni province ties in a little closer with the nature of the fight in Afghanistan since 2001. We so often think of Iraq and Afghanistan for you know some good reason. Sometimes we just forget these aren't American exclusive conflicts. In both wars, the United States has either been the leading proponent of, of kicking off that conflict or has, and in some cases, or in both cases, had the majority of the troops on the ground and the resources committed to the fight. But Iraq started with an allied invasion, the coalition. Afghanistan still today is a NATO mission, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So there were a lot of countries after 9-11 that, that entered Afghanistan along with the United States. One of those countries is Poland. And they, not to downplay any other countries, the, the British, I'm going to put them side by side here, and I'm, I'm sure that I'm forgetting a few of these, but there's a lot of countries that contribute something to the fight. There are, I'm going to forget which country it was, but I remember hearing some would send a platoon at a time, and it's great if that's what you can contribute to the fight or that's where this conflict sits within your national security priorities, then super. You can contribute something. It's awesome. But there were, there were countries sending that. Other countries might just send medevac support for periods of time. It's not as though everybody is sending brigade combat teams or army divisions or Marine Corps regiments. The British are unique in that they would take control of provinces and were well, the Canadians as well. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to pass over some here. So my apologies in advance. I'm just 
going off memory here from from a couple of these. The Canadians for a long period of time would be responsible for Kandahar. Kandahar province, incredibly deadly and nasty fight for the duration of the war. The British would for a long time be solely responsible for Helmand province. Again, one of the nastiest, deadliest, hardest fought regions in the entire country. The Poles would take responsibility for Ghazni. We don't, it's not forefront in our view of the war in Afghanistan, but for a long period of time, the Poles ran Ghazni. And that's not a pacified region. There are parts of Afghanistan today that just aren't that bad in terms of conflict, in terms of strife and combat and how deadly they are to Western soldiers. Ghazni's always been contested. It's not maybe as bad as, say, parts of Kunar. It's not, doesn't have the the number of casualties that you might see in Kandahar or Helmand, but Ghazni is, is far from pacified. And the Poles are running that mission. That's not to say that they're not, I, I would bring up the, the amount of conflict there, not to say that the Poles weren't doing their job. It was the same across the country. Nobody really pacified a region throughout the conflict. Just saying that it's not as though they were given some easy backwater part of Afghanistan that didn't really need any, any work. So the Poles are operating out of Ghazni. And in 2013, we've really crossed this line. You know, we're 12 years into the war. For the first few years, the operations were heavily American, almost exclusively American. Then we had a window in there where it was joint 50-50 on paper, kind of sort of joint Afghan and, and, and NATO. I need to be more careful in this episode, say NATO and not just saying American. Joint Afghan and, and NATO operations. 2013 is on the back end where we're going to see a lot more Afghan-led operations. This is, we're in the window where I, I think a good way to say it is we really want to declare victory in Afghanistan. We really don't want to keep committing the same level of manpower that we have and resources that we have for a long period of time. So we're, we're how can we, how can we wrap this up? And one of those ways is to start to transition more and more to the Afghan forces. That's about where we sit in 2013. And Ghazni, FOB Ghazni that we're going to get into here, FOB stands for Ford Operating Base. It's going to be a little bit larger of an area um, maintained by the Poles and Americans and, and NATO forces. A lot of the operations out of there aren't necessarily going to be clearing operations like we would see early in the war, but a lot more of supporting the Afghan forces that go out and, and interact with the local population and maybe try to um, build up local governance. governance. Assigned to FOB Ghazni is Staff Sergeant Michael Aulis. Michael Aulis has been in the Army for a while now. He's Staff Sergeant and previously deployed with the 101st Airborne Division to Iraq and then in 2010-11 deployed to Zari District with Bravo Company known as the Renegades. 2502 Infantry, part of the 2nd Brigade Combat Team, again, under the 101st Airborne. So um, that was a deployment that I was on with Dog Company. So our Bravo and Dog Companies were um, not too far from one another. So I know that that he and I crossed paths. I didn't know Staff Sergeant Aulis, but um, he was known, I guess, is a, is a good way to say it. He was, was known as a, a stud within the battalion, just operating a little ways away from from where the, uh, the soldiers of dog were. 
deploys again to Afghanistan in, in 2013, and he's on Fob Ghazni as a staff sergeant. And there's going to be an attack that kicks off, and it's known roughly as the attack on Fob Ghazni. Um, it takes the form of a way in which the Taliban would attack bases that they knew they couldn't overrun, but that they that were susceptible to a certain level of violence, if you will. So if you look at things like the battle of Wanat and the battle of Kamdesh, there's going to be certain bases that are isolated enough and small enough that the Taliban have a legitimate chance of overrunning those. And they almost do. In, in, on multiple occasions throughout the war, they almost overrun bases. They have never almost overrun large military complexes. They don't have the manpower to really be able to push that through. That's just not, well, that's just not how that fight is being waged. Fob Ghazni is in the category of a base that will not be overrun by the Taliban, but it's small enough to where they might be able to breach the wire, if you will, in this case, be breaching HESCO barriers and get in and, and inflict quite a few casualties. Now, these bases across Afghanistan are interesting because they're not permanent. They, they're never designed to be permanent. They're maybe in the category of, of semi-permanent. But if you think of something like the White House, that's permanent. That's going to be there for a long time. It's not like we're going to get up and move it down the street. It's not like we're going to transition that to a hotel in six years and it doesn't need security. The White House is going to need security today, tomorrow, next year, and in the future. So you can slowly, deliberately build on these defenses, build permanent defenses. You know, you can build standoff, put gates in. You can reinforce maybe a guard shack. But when you're building these bases in Afghanistan, there were very few of these. If you take out the major airfields like Kandahar and Bagram, maybe include things like Jalalabad. When you take the major airfields out and you look at just outposts or forward operating bases that don't have landing strips for fixed wing aircraft, these all started as small little outposts. It wasn't known if they were going to turn into some large base or not. But throughout the war, American forces would take little areas. They'd build them up maybe with sandbags or small HESCO barriers, these baskets, they kind of wesh, wesh, wire mesh baskets that hold dirt and act as, you know, a six to eight foot wall that'll absorb most blasts. But then we'd move on that that wasn't the spot to be. We'd have to move a base to a different location, or we decide we have two battalions in that Valley. We only need one to stand them down. So we're building these temporary bases because we don't know if we're going to be there. We don't know if, you know, in a perfect world, we don't need, all of these fortifications around Afghanistan in the first place, right? If, if we can work towards creating this peaceful environment in Afghanistan, at least there was a time where that was the thought that it, that was a realistic outcome. We don't need fortifications all over every province. So don't build them permanent because building it permanent is expensive and time consuming. Build it temporary, semi-permanent. But semi-permanent means that there's vulnerabilities. And one of those vulnerabilities is going to be in certain areas that cars can get close to the outer wall, which that's not the, the biggest threat in Afghanistan is not car bombs like we saw in parts of Iraq during that war. But it still happens. 
And in the morning of August 28, 2013, a car bomb goes off outside of Fab Ghazni and it breaches a hole in the outer perimeter. As that hole opens up, Taliban from around the area start raining in rocket propelled grenades, machine gun and small arms fire, and mortars all over the base. It's not a huge base. So if you're on Fab Ghazni, you know pretty quickly something not right is happening. Another Taliban tactic that's in use here is that shows that this is not an attempt to overrun and take the base is 10 Taliban fighters storm through that gap wearing suicide vests. So, you know, if you're thinking of overrunning the base, it doesn't do you any good if all of those soldiers kill themselves detonating suicide vests. So again, they're looking to inflict maximum casualties. These 10 attackers move through the gate and take up positions, kicking off a pretty lengthy gun battle with American forces. Staff Sergeant Michael Aulis hears the explosion, and the leader that he is quickly runs and checks on his men, makes sure they are alive, unwounded, and, and accounted for. From there, he takes off towards the sound of gunfire. As he's moving towards the fight, he comes across a Polish officer that he does not know, has not met before. But brothers in arms, they're on the same team. They've at least been operating in the same area for a period of time, and they both know something isn't right and something needs to be done about this. They link up, move towards the sound of the fight. They come across an Army Special Forces team that's already been engaged with the Taliban inside the wire. They've killed a few of them. I think by the time they link up, there's eight that have been killed. Now, something to keep in mind is nobody announced over a loudspeaker there are 10 Taliban fighters with suicide vests inside the wire. It's unknown. Are there 50? Are there three? Are they all wearing suicide? All of this stuff comes out after the fact. In the heat of the moment, all that's known is there are Taliban attackers inside the wire, and at least some of them have suicide vests. Before long, the ninth is killed as he tries to throw a grenade at American forces. That leaves just one. Again, we know that it leaves just one. As they're moving forward, continuing the assault, a Taliban fighter wearing a suicide vest steps around a corner right by Staff Sergeant Alice and the Polish officer. As he does so, he gets ready to detonate his vest. Alice moves forward, steps in front of the Polish officer to engage the target. As he does so, as, as he's engaging the target, the insurgent detonates his vest setting it off, the blast kills Alice instantly. But because he moved in front of the Polish officer and acted as a shield, that man would live. Now, for that act, at, at the well, at the end of the day, that was the final attacker. That was the last suicide bomber. Takes a while to confirm that and make sure, you know, how, how long do you want to know how long do you spend looking to make sure there's not anybody else hiding, right? It's an incredible effort after the fact to make sure you got everybody and then start to patch up the wall and reestablish security. There's, I believe there's seven killed in the attack all in. Most of them, seven friendly forces killed in the attack. Staff Sergeant Aulis was the only American. Incredible. Given that they breached a hole in the wire, there should have been a lot more killed. I believe the other six were Afghan police and Afghan army. Again, remember this time in the conflict, 
the Afghans are taking lead. So these are the people at the guard towers. These are the people um, on the wall. So they they were facing the, the, the brunt of the fight right off the gate. For his action, given his life to save this Polish officer that he'd never met, whose name I'm going to mispronounce, but is uh, Lieutenant Carol Sierpica, Sierpica, C-I-E-R-P-I-C-A. For sacrificing his life for his brother-in-arms, Staff Sergeant Michael Hollis would be put in for the Silver Star. Eventually, that would be upgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross. That is the that is only second to the Medal of Honor in terms of valor awards for the United States Army. But here we go. Here's the best part of a tragic story. The Polish officer would return home, would survive, would survive because Alice stepped in front of him as the suicide bomber was detonated his vest. The officer returns home, and in honor of his fallen American brother-in-arms, names his firstborn child, Michael. So, pretty incredible story about Staff Sergeant Michael Alice. I have a hard time holding it together kind of towards the end here. That's, that, that's awesome. That's, that's just really, really cool. But heck of a sacrifice from Staff Sergeant Michael Alice, giving his life to save the life of a man he doesn't know not even an American soldier, not even one of his guys, a Polish officer. And it is so awesome to see that his legacy is going to live on um, through that Polish officer's son named Michael. So that's what we got. Staff Sergeant Michael Alls awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for actions in Afghanistan during the Battle of Fab Ghazni in August of 2013. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.